Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences video podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here in the studio today with Maynard Nexon, healthcare attorney Matthew Roberts. Matthew, good to be back with you in 2024. Yeah. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. And we're joined today by Dr. Kevin Bennett of the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, where he serves as both the director of the Research Center for Transforming Health and the Director for Rural and Primary Health Care. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, your career has been dedicated to helping people get quality access to health care. And can you start by giving us a little bit about your background and then how you got to the University of South Carolina School of Medicine? Yes. So I grew up in a small town in southwestern Virginia in the Appalachian Mountains. And uh my journey was interesting. I actually started off in architecture and engineering and my speech to kids, um, especially my kids is to feel free to switch those majors when they don't fit. Um, I ended up actually in exercise science and I did cardiac rehab for a while and ended up in grad school where I got the health policy bug. I remember taking a course, um, that just blew my mind as far as macro level systems thinking on how to change healthcare and the health of populations. And that's where it just, it just took off from there. Um, I came to USC here in 2001 to do my doctoral work, which is where I latched on to a couple mentors, Dr. Samuels and Dr. Probst um, to do rural health policy work. And that was the perfect fit for me as far as systems level thinking, but also coming from a rural town and understanding those different needs, it just felt like the perfect combination of what I wanted to do. And I've basically been doing that ever since. Um, here at USC, I've been here for as professor for 19 years now. This is uh, almost 20 years now here at USC doing this work. So it's been uh, it's been a long haul, but it's been uh, a good one, I think. Dr. Bennett, thanks again for joining us. I, I've seen you speak several times. I've been impressed by the work you're doing uh, at the School of Medicine within the state. But can you talk to, let us, talk to us a little bit about the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Health Care? We know that is a vital force for providing improved health care in rural parts, but it really helps the entire state. Can you talk a little bit how, about it was, how it was established and what its purpose is and goals are? Right. So our Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare, we were uh, founded in 2017 as a center of excellence here at the School of Medicine at USC. We are funded through the legislature. So the legislature has a budget proviso they call the Rural Health Initiative. And we get our funding for our work directly from the legislature. I'm actually going over there in a couple of weeks to talk to them and try to get more money from them. Um, and through a contract with Health and Human Services is how we actually do all this work. And we have set up as a center of excellence, we have a staff of getting close to 20 now, program managers and data science people and researchers and evaluators to basically try to figure out how do we fill in the gaps for rural healthcare delivery across the state. Uh, right now we're funding close to 70 programs across the state in 40 out of our 46 counties. We, um, we are not ones who actually do any delivery itself. We don't go into the communities and deliver care. What we try to do is partner with local institutions, healthcare organizations, community-based organizations, uh, libraries, any number of things to 
try to get care delivery in an appropriate way, in a community-based way, but in a sustainable way so that we can provide funding, build capacity, build some new structures and improve that care. And then they are off and running on their own after we're done. Um, I think it's a great model of including those communities to do the work itself because they actually know what they need better than we do. Uh, we never want to come in and say, listen to us. We're from the government. We know what we're doing. That's a terrible <laughs> approach, right? right. Uh, but we do have a lot of expertise. And so how do we convey that to them, empower them, build that capacity so that they can continue to do it themselves is overall our goal. You're equipping them, I suppose. Exactly. Equipping um, for sustainability is a big thing that we really try to focus on. Yes. You and I share a history of being from rural America. And so I, I hear what you're saying. There's not a lot of health care available in rural areas. But I suppose the same goes for then healthcare workers and the training for them. What is the center doing to help here? Pre-pandemic, it was already like that. And now we're post-pandemic where people are stressed from their jobs. Yes. And it's a, it was a sticky issue before, for sure. And COVID really did not help. Um, you know, I, I was talking about this with some folks the other day that people don't realize we lost, you know, depending on estimates, about a million people from COVID, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a drop in people and loved ones and family members, but in the workforce. And so it's hard to replace that many people. Um, I think a lot of people, especially in rural, because rural communities, if they have a healthcare provider, they might be the only one. Uh, they are often open extra hours and do additional things to serve their communities the best way that they can, because that's why they're there. And COVID was just really hard on them. Um, seeing people get sick and dying. Uh, you had a lot of staff that would leave, a lot of front desk staff, actually, administrative staff like that. We're having, we're hearing problems with people trying to replace that because those are the folks that got a lot of abuse with masks and vaccines and things like that. Um, and they just kind of got burned out from that level of stress. You know, and we all know there's a nursing shortage and there's a provider, there's not necessarily a provider shortage, but a provider maldistribution problem um, where, you know, the economics of our current healthcare system is such that if you're a primary care provider, it's really hard to make the economic case to locate in rural unless you have some other help somewhere. Right. Um, and so they end up either going to specialties to get better pay, to pay off their debts, to pay off their loans and to earn an, a living that way. Um, or they do primary care somewhere else. Um, and so it, it's, it is challenging. We are working with a lot of partners to try to impact that, um, we're working with Prisma Health, for example, to do some incentive packages for family medicine, psychiatry, and obstetrics and gynecology, where if they, Prisma will hire them and then we'll supply funding for them to provide additional incentive payments to those providers for four years to stay in that rural community. You know, those are, you know, money talks in a lot of ways, um, but they can use that for house payments, for paying off loans, for anything they need. And it's a way to get people there and working in rural communities quickly. Are there any, pro are there any programs that are specific to loan forgiveness if they work in rural communities? Yes, there's a lot of those. There's National Health Service Corps, um, and there's some local ones as well that are run through AHEC, Rural Scholars, um, that do the same thing. 
you know, you'll pay off a portion of the loan if you work in a rural community. Those funds are always limited um, and tend to be expended. Um, and, you know, the problem with all those is it's a it's a reactive solution. And sometimes it's a Band-Aid. They'll do the, their four years and then they'll leave. Right. You know? And it's not ideal. I always say it's great to have them for those four years, but we really want people to be there for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. right. And so if you go back and... A lot of folks, AHEC is one of them. A lot of our uh, USC partners are working on this of how do we recruit students from rural communities and move them through the educational pipeline and facilitate them getting to med school, getting to nurse practitioner programs, PA programs, nurse, nurse anesthetists, RN programs, so that they can go back to their home communities. Because you're going to be more likely to go back home, especially if the the path is facilitated and those barriers are knocked down. Um, we have a partnership with Claflin, for example, to give scholarships for uh, RN, BSN, RN program. So they're graduating nurses with bachelor's degrees. And these are largely women of color that are from rural communities, and they're going to go back and serve those communities, um, which that's a nice way to do it. And they don't have right. to worry about loan forgiveness or burdens because they've gotten a scholarship to do it. Right. It's a re relatively inexpensive way to beef up that workforce. You mentioned the the maldistribution of providers, particularly physicians. In 2021, Congress approved a thousand or so new Medicare funded residency residency positions that would go designed to go into rural and other underserved areas. But all of those have not come to pass. There have been issues regarding um, funding. How does the center? Uh, get involved in that, and how does the center coordinate with the USC medical students and residents to to let them at least sometimes work in rural areas and and to rotate through communities that are underserved? Yeah, and, and that's that's a very difficult issue. Honestly, it it sounds great to have more residency slots. Um, setting up a residency experience in a rural community is very difficult because you have to have preceptors and. Uh, facilities and structures and all those sorts of things to make sure that they administratively and um, regulatorily have the right things that they need to finish their residency. It can be done and it is done and we've done it here. Um, I, here at the USC side, we actually have a Florence campus where students will go for their third and fourth year of med school to get a more rural experience. Florence isn't necessarily rural. Uh, but they serve a lot of rural patients. You know, they come from all over the place to come to Florence and they have some satellite clinics that are direct, more directly rural. Uh, so that's, that's one way to get them entranced in that at their clinical training before they go to residency. I think those experiences are key for them to see that rural healthcare is very uh, rewarding. Uh, it can be kind of exciting. You're faced with all sorts of different issues that you can make a huge impact with. So that would enable them to, or encourage them to choose a rural residency instead of an urban residency. Right. And I think the more of that that we do, the more traction we'll get with those residency slots. Around Florence, there's obviously a lot of rural areas. What could communities like a Nichols, a Mullins, a you know, Hemingway, something like that, what could they do? What could the providers in the community do to become more attractive uh, as a place to live and work? Do they do they start with their own people to try to recruit them long-term or, or do they go externally? What do they do? 
that, that's the million dollar question, right? Mm-hmm. I think um, I think you start with your own people. You know, I think if you're from a Nichols, um, students are going to go to a university that's not in Nichols because there isn't one, right? Right, right. Um, so how do you get them to come back? How do you get them to not even consider it, but how do you find jobs that will allow them to relocate there, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been on the uptick since COVID because there's so much work from home that's available to folks now that you really could work from just about anywhere. You could work for a firm in Charlotte, but live in Nichols if you wanted to. Um, downside of that is a lot of our rural communities are still lacking broadband access. Hmm. And so that's something that we have partners in the state, Palmetto Care Connections and other folks are working on trying to get broadband into rural communities. There's some funding for that. Um, but it is still a challenge. It's an infrastructure challenge. Um, and there's some places in our state that still don't have cell phone coverage at all, let alone high-speed broadband. Um, so those are those are going to be difficult challenges to meet with. Um, I think you have to be clever as a community to figure out how to get the services and the providers and other workforce that you need. It might be banding together with other communities to share a resource. Um, it could be a combination of mobile units, for example, that come in and deliver care periodically. We work with a lot of mobile units at our center. Um, virtual care, telehealth care is a great way to do a lot of that. But again, you need broadband and a place to do it if you can't get it at their homes. So, you know, going to the library, going to a school. Um, some states are experimenting with firehouses as a healthcare hub, which is an interesting model. So it's all it's all about alternative access points, places people trust. Libraries are trusted sites that a lot of folks will go to to get healthcare info. So why not put a telehealth room there? You know, these are innovative models that we can try to figure out how do we how do we have a telehealth room and supplement it with in-person care via, you know, a wandering physician, a tele, a mobile health unit or some other model of care because it's we have the tech and we have the ability and the resources to be creative. Um, and so, yeah, it's, but it's still, a it's still a daunting issue. Dr. Bennett, when I started doing healthcare law in 1995, there were probably six or eight independent rural health, rural hospitals, uh, operating in the state that, um, were the focal point for their communities with respect to the delivery of healthcare. Uh, three or four of those are no longer in existence. Um, and the other three or four have been consolidated in um, to a larger system. Um, what have you seen with the consolidation of smaller rural hospitals into larger systems? What have we we've been able to maintain and expand the access? And what have you seen when we've had communities like Bamberg and Barnwell lose hospitals um, that aren't replaced with another facility? Right. Consolidation is a huge problem in rural healthcare, uh, not just hospitals, but also practices will get bought up, consolidated, mm-hmm. and often closed or incorporated, um, because then it becomes part of a larger profit loss spreadsheet right. in that system of care, not as a central point of care that's needed. Um, and so it's, it's, I mean, it's just tragic when you see, especially a hospital close, um, you it's a huge hit upon that community for rural communities. The largest employer is often that hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's not the hospital, it's the school district. And so if a hospital closes, not only are you losing providers and much needed healthcare services at a local 
level, you're losing an economic benefit to that town. People's jobs go away. The hospital's not spending money at the restaurants, at the local providers. And it kind of leads sometimes to a death spiral in these communities across the U.S. Um, and so, you know, how do you convince a healthcare system that is trying to keep their referrals in line and keep patients in their system where they see it not as a vital part of the community, which it was, but now as a location that's bringing patients into their doors. You know, that's a shift in thinking for those systems. And that's the way the systems are set up. So I don't necessarily blame them for that. I wish they could see it differently. Um, but that's what happens. And that's what often you see them either close. You'll see some of these hospitals convert to like a freestanding emergency department. Uh, that is fine for a lot of places, but some places just need more than that. We need more mm -hmm. uh, services. And, you know, you, you're going to have a harder time recruiting physicians to a community if there's not a local hospital as well, because they need colleagues, they need x-rays, they need met testing, they need their patients to have local access to those care. So it, it's, just a, it's just a huge problem. What do you feel about the concept where you have a freestanding emergency room that replaces a rural hospital? We've seen that in a couple of instances in South Carolina. And then there's a medical office building with some, maybe an ASC, a surgery center, some imaging that is uh, staffed by physicians who come in from a larger market or mid-level providers and provide the care on a three, four day a week process. Does that model work in some rural communities? So yes, I think cautiously it does work. I think with, um, with caveats, of, of course, of always. Um, I think there is something to be said for re-examining the rural hospital in some ways. Mm -hmm. What do we mean by that? What do we actually need in a rural community? Do they need a cardiac cath lab? Maybe not. You know, Do they need a triage center? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do they need some level of overnight stays? Yes. You know, Care in the local community. They need something where physicians can connect to and get the, uh, those ultra high level services they need, they can't deliver in an office. Um, the other trade-off that you have to think about though, <clears throat> is there is a very distinct link between volume and quality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having an, an ambulatory surgical center could be a very good model for a rural community, as long as they're doing enough volume on the procedures to make sure they're of high quality. Right. Cause that's another mantra we try to hit is that rural deserves good high quality care as well not just the leftovers. Absolutely. Right. So how do you, how do you balance that needle? I think you could do it. I think you could do it effectively in a coordinated way across those three entities in a way that the patients are well cared for. The other key would then be what's that coordination look like when patients have to leave the market and they have to go to a larger, you know, level one in Columbia. What's that communication like with the doctors in Columbia and the local doc? Can they right. care? Can they coordinate that care effectively and make sure that they're taken care of when they come home? Um, if, if we can do that, then I think we'll be okay. Um, and I think that could be a viable model. Um, but it's going to take a lot of coordination at that community level to make sure it happens. Well, you certainly have your work cut out for you. That's clear. But let's wrap up this conversation today with some good news. And that is you, as of today, this year, you are the serving as the president of the National Rural Health Association. Congratulations on that. Uh, explain a little bit about your role, what you see in the coming year. Sure. So, you know, the National Rural Health Association is um, 
kind of the advocacy group at the national level for rural practitioners and healthcare entities. Uh, about 20,000 members strong um, across all the states in the U.S. And, you know, they have a very robust uh, government affairs team where they actually take uh, policy briefs that we've written, suggestions to policymakers to try to get bills enacted, changes in regulations to make sure that rural isn't being left behind and isn't being impacted in a negative way by federal policy. Um, they're extraordinarily effective and they're a well-trusted resource um, thankfully, I don't have to do that piece. I will come alongside them and, and encourage them and help them write those briefs, but I don't have to do the direct government education, and I can't lobby anyway because I'm a university employee anyway. Right. Um, but what my role as president will be is kind of the figurehead of the organization, that expert that media can talk to. Um, and, you know, I've already started that. This is not my first interview this week, uh, which is so I'm, I'm gearing up for a lot of these media type things. Um, but it's a nice opportunity, especially in an election year like we have this year for us to really beat that drum of rural is important. Uh, rural deserves to be paid attention to, but also really big picture. You know, there's a lot going on in rural that's really exciting. Uh, there's some creativity, there's some resiliency there. They're coming up with some really interesting models of care and community care that I think we could all learn a lot from. And so how do we flip that narrative to the doom and gloom of rural healthcare is on its last legs to, yeah, but they're coming up with really cool models that would really impact care in a positive way, impact patients and populations in a positive way and grow communities. And, you know, my goal is through this work is to highlight those models, use our state as a test bed for a lot of these models, because I want other states and the feds even to look to South Carolina for what works for healthcare delivery and to adopt the South Carolina model. You know, that's where I want to get to and for us to lead the way and for rural South Carolina to lead the way um, in that is exciting and I think is very possible. So that that's kind of what I want to help this platform do is to move that needle in a very positive way. Well, I'm glad you'll be doing that. I think you will serve as a glass half full uh, messenger for the country. And I try. Um, we I try. Yes, <laughs> we definitely wish you the best. But on behalf of Matthew and our whole team here at Taking the Pulse, Dr. Kevin Bennett with the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, thank you so much for your good work. And we wish you the best ahead in 2024. Thank you very much. Pleasure being here. Thank you. For those of you who joined us today, we hope you enjoyed this discussion on rural health care. Um, we hope that you would also look at it as an opportunity to improve and be entrepreneurial because uh, things can like this can be overcome. We saw it during COVID, didn't we, we did. Matthew? We right? Did. Everybody got resilient and overcame. We look forward to seeing you next time right here on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences video podcast.